Escape from Plan A. Hey, welcome to Escape from Plan A for this week. Uh, this is, I guess, I don't know if it's even uh, this week. We're doing a bunch of pods, like we're doing more pods now, given sort of the, you know, the the nature of the time. So this is your host, Teen, and I'm here with Jess. Jess, how is it going? The weather is warm and people are mad. Good enough. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Uh, so same as last week. And we got <laughs> a special guest who we haven't spoken to in a long time because he's been super busy doing his thing, State Assemblyman Ron Kim. Ron Kim, how are you, man? Hey, I'm doing well. Thanks for having me on again, Teen, and, and thanks for having me on, Jess. Yeah, we were we were uh, surprised at how uh, available you are just because <laughs> maybe we reached out to you at just the right time because I've been fo- we've been following you a bit online, and it seems like um, you're super busy. You're everywhere. Before everything hit, I saw you were in Japan you know, dealing with... Uh, dealing with transit issues. And then after that, I saw you were in conferences dealing with uh, cryptocurrencies and how they can be applied uh, at the community level. And then now I see you dealing with multiple crises hitting New York City all at the same time. Uh, you're, I saw you were over at Elmhurst Hospital near me uh, trying to get PPE t- uh, and, and other kind of like equipment, testing equipment over to the hospitals. I see you in front of some of the nursing care facilities for the elderly in this area that have been hit hard by this uh and you're still got time to to come and podcast with us so much appreciated rom well i'm a big fan so and there aren't that many mediums out there that provide space for people like me to connect with uh, progressive asian americans and other communities Uh, and i feel like your podcast is one of those unique uh, you know people individuals that have come together that that can give me the opportunity to really be honest about where I am and, you know, kind of vent a little bit at the same <laughs> yeah, yeah. time because there, because not that many people want to listen to my, to, to my complaints <laughs> these days. Um, look, uh, we're here for it. It's a, it's an honor. Yeah. It looks like, uh, looks like <laughs> Diana away. has joined as well. Diana, are you there? Can you hear us? Okay, cool. Awesome. Yeah. So yeah. Uh, it's the four of us. Um, Diana and and Ron, you all were on the same. We were on in the t- same room together actually last time we potted. So um, yeah, yep. So w- yeah, it feels like forever ago. Yeah. Like we, you it's can't a, even. It's just it's impossible now. It's a yeah. different world. Yeah. Yeah, that was like that was like ten pounds ago. For oh. me, so. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> um yeah so uh yeah no sorry diana i i uh we had we were just talking before like i'm gonna we wanted to just ask ron straight like right off the bat um because and the reason i want to ask this is because i have heard more and more asian americans expressing um interest at least uh, uh, some sort of initial interest in maybe getting a little bit more involved in politics themselves perhaps running for office and I don't necessarily want to ask you how to do it. And I mean, I'm sure that's everywhere. That's highly dependent on, you know, where you are in the world. But I want to get a sense of what has it been like doing your what has your job been like these past, you know, say two months since the COVID crisis, since the, uh, you know, the, the escalation in the protests and 
you know, what are the stresses of your jobs? What are the goals? What do you bring with you in terms of how you decide where you decide to be on a given day and what you're doing on that day? That's a very broad question. I'm sorry, but I I wanted to just pose that to you and and let you answer that any way you want. Thanks, Teen. I think for me, like many elected officials and other community activists, it's been a constant up and down roller coaster. I, I haven't had one day where I had the same schedule for the last you know, two and a half, three months. Like every day it's been different. I would wake up, have a plan in mind, but something bad would happen and I have to react to it. And I have to, I have to stay very fluid um, to the needs of my communities. And it's also been very demoralizing at the same time uh, because you know I have a philosophy of trying to constantly pursue uh, the singular truth behind everything that we do whether it's policy or lawmaking or mistakes we made. But unfortunately, we're surrounded in politics by you know, very powerful individuals who, who defend multiple versions of the truth. And they're, it's designed to be that way. And to go up against that at a time like this in a pandemic, it's, it's very cumbersome. It's very tiring. And sometimes, you know, when you wake up, you just feel like you have 300 pounds on top of you. I think many of us know what that feels like when there's so many things that we want to get to and so much stress and so much pain and trauma that you're seeing on the ground and so many people dying, you know, including your own family members. Right. And just, it's sometimes you just want to give up and you don't have the, the energy anymore because what's the, you know, you wake up saying, what's the point? You know, I tried, but they don't want to talk about real solutions. You know, they just want to give, the impression you want to gaslight the public that we're doing something a facade of a solution that doesn't go anywhere and you know I'm, I'm specifically referring to you know my fight with the governor of new york for the last couple of months in dealing with specific issues like the nursing home facilities and his unwillingness to admit that there were mistakes made and we need to learn quickly and get ahead of the next possible wave and it's just been very frustrating when you deal with, uh, you know, just very macho male alpha, mostly white male politicians who are just unwilling to bend, um, to put down their facade of a, of a tough person. Uh, for those who aren't necessarily um, tuned in to the specifics, uh, do you mind filling, filling us in on what's been going on? Um, with Governor Cuomo the, uh, and the and uh, specific, I mean, sure. there's so many crises, but I mean, it's been egregious. Um, his treatment of the nursing homes, uh, his silencing. Uh, could you fill us in a little on on the fight you've been fighting? Yeah. So New York State has the most number of nursing home fatalities. I think up to date we have close to six thousand uh, deaths, and that's a conservative count. We don't even have an accurate count yet. But before we even reached the apex of the pandemic, the nursing home corporations, which is you know mostly run by uh, private equity firms and hedge funds, they're heavily invested in the space, figured out how to get to the governor and write themselves a, a, a get out of jail free immunity corporate card because they knew what was in the pipeline. And they snuck that in into, in the form of an executive order, which is something that governors can do. And then they, they put it inside the 5,000-page document in the budget, giving them you know, 
uh, corporate immunity. And while doing so, he made a fatal error of uh, mandating that nursing homes take COVID-positive patients. Um, now, many states have done this because they, they felt like the hospitals might be overwhelmed and they couldn't take them in. But every executive realized it was a mistake and they retracted that order. And some states actually went the other way. They actually banned people, uh, COVID positives, renting from nursing homes. But the, this governor, it took him two months to rescind that order. And, and we all know that that is the reason why he has so many people dying uh, in our nursing homes. And he is unwilling to even um, come close to admitting that he, he made any mistakes. Do, do you feel that, you know, the majority of the state assembly or, or people in Albany or, or uh, I'm not really sure where you're spending most of your time these days, but I mean, do they feel your frustration or is the or it, I guess the broader question, I have no specific questions for you. I just it's like all broad questions today. Like, is the anger and frustration of the people getting through or do they get do they get that they're fucking up? Do they get that like? You know, and, and I think this is you're seeing what's going on on the street. I know that this is in the name of George Floyd, but I, I personally feel like there must be, you know, more anger and frustration than that. That might have been a trigger point to some extent. But I think there's more that's being expressed by the people now. So do they get it? Do they understand what's, you know? Well, they definitely they got it this week and they got it this past few days. But. When we we're trying to address the nursing home crisis, when we, back, when we went back to Albany trying to legislate, everybody was shilling for the governor. You know, every, every time I brought it up, and I, and I work nonstop. You know, I, I have two bills in a matter of weeks that we put together to put immediate and long-term solution to repeal the corporate immunity. You know, I was on CNN, you know, talking about this, again, exposing the truth. And I'm going to Albany, but... The way that things are structured in many places like Albany around the country, people that get into positions of power, you know, they get there because they ultimately compromise, right? They have to climb the political ladder. There's, they have to trade. They have, there's, a, there's political social currencies that they, are, they need to honor. They have to be a team player. They have to be loyal. All these things are designed to keep people down and, and submit people into power, especially when you have an authoritative type of governor or executive like Governor Cuomo. Um, so that's, that's, you know, so it, it, it was super frustrating, you know, that the only, ironically, the only people that agree with me were the Republicans. You know, so I'm, I'm out there on the floor uh, calling people out, calling the governor, um, but the moderate you know, established Democrats, they were almost admonishing me that this is not the time to blame anyone. This is time to move oh, forward. God. It's about yeah. unity. Yeah. You know, it's about, you know, togetherness. You know, and, no, I got, I got 6,000 fucking people who died, man. Like, I, I need someone to be held accountable, mm-hmm. you know, and, 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 and get this right. And the anger, the frustration, or the passion uh, had, was not there. But this week, Entirely different story, right? When every night you got people, uh, pro, uh, you know, nonviolent protesters going out and, and, and marching, you know, every imaginable Asian group too, for the first time in the history 
of New York City and my district. You got Asians yelling Black Lives Matter in the middle of downtown. I saw that. That was not covered. Yeah, that was that wasn't covered much. But, you know, on because, you know, I my I follow Chinese social media a little bit through my girlfriend who pays attention to it. And, uh, yeah, I saw that there was a very sizable. I, uh, you know, pro Black Lives Matter march in Flushing, I think down Main Street. And uh, I was impressed. I was happy to see that. Yeah, but it takes that amount of people powered movement, I think, for lawmakers collectively to come and speak with passion and dedication on the floor and push for bills. And even with that, you know, these, these reform bills that, I, that fully support, half of them will water down because just like nursing home corporations, the police department and the, and the police unions, it's a giant corporation. You know, in New York City, the NYPD is a $6 billion operation. So, so what does that buy you? It buys you privacy, heightened civil liberty for cops, uh, what they call qualified immunity, you know, enhanced immunity. So they've had these luxuries for years. And the first time, you know, we, we were seizing the opportunity to call them out on it and, and try to repeal these laws and strengthen the rights of the people. But even when we're doing that in this hour, it's not, you know, the, the, the bills, the gold standard bills that we would like. You know, it was still water down. Yeah, I guess one 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 question I want to ask. Um, God, it's so hard because we're jumping between two overlapping crises in New York. Obviously, um, the the protests I think have taken uh, precedence in terms of people's attention. Um, I wanted I wanted to ask, like, is there because I find that some of the things that you've said already are are true in a broad sense. Like, for example, that sometimes you feel the frustration with Cuomo, it's almost as if the Republicans are the ones who at least get that a certain type of frustration and uh, this this um, pressure for Democrats to to sort of compromise and to cave. And uh, and, and and another thing that I found um, broadly true is that these protests can become very tricky for Asian-Americans. And uh, I know that a lot of Asian-Americans are very uh, supportive of, of BLM and that's great. And I'm, I, I think everyone, uh, at least on this podcast is extremely supportive of BLM. Um, but that's not to say that there aren't also issues of some reactionary attitudes within the Asian community towards, uh, the black community and there's antagonisms in the city. Uh, has that become, has that been an issue in this case, or do you think it's in this case, we've, we've been able to set aside, uh, differences and, and come out and be clear as to you know where uh, where our anger is really directed. Yeah, it's it's actually I'm in a unique situation now because uh, as you know I'm, I don't know if you remember I have a a challenger uh, that I'm dealing with in the Democratic primary election that's in two weeks, and my challenger is an active NYPD officer, a Chinese American police officer. And he's running from the, he, he's never voted in a Democratic primary. He changed to the party last year or this year. Um, and he's running completely from the right of, you know, so he's running <coughs> on, on bringing back bail, um, you know, cleaning up flushing, getting rid of the, the 
so you know, quote unquote, prostitution and flushing. Law and order kind All of guy. Law and order. Law, complete law and order guy, and and he he kept with it all this time. So he is fear mongering on the street like crazy. Like he's going into uh, all of the mostly Chinese voters saying, I'm going to ruin flushing. I'm going to bring, I'm going to legalize all sorts of drugs and I'm going to bring in all these prostitutes. And I'm this radical person that, uh, that is going to ruin everyone. It's going to, everyone's going to be violent, etc. So he's out there kind of, and a lot of my voters, you know, I've spent so many years getting them to a place of building solidarity with, with black and Hispanic communities and really deciphering what economic justice is and how it intersects with race, racial and social justice. And he's trying to undo all, all of that uh, during this campaign. So I'm actually living this, uh, this kind of dichotomy and this conflict that Asians have um, every single day. You know, the first generations, they come in they come to the, the place like Flushing in New York City. All they want to do is focus on fitting in. You know, they want to survive. You know, they they want to be part of this authoritative structure, and because they're small business owners, they want to make sure the police protects them. They have security uh, behind you know, protecting their so-called hard work as Americans. So- so, so, Ron, I want to ask, I just want to interject here because that, yeah. that's a very interesting question to me because I think it's a difficult one is how do you how do you talk to your constituents about that? Like, how do you get the message or how, how have you tried to get that message across to them that the law and order, uh, the, the cracking, the, you know, let's get tough on crime. How do you let them know, in my opinion, this sort of reactionary and uh, tr- tried and failed method that is not the way forward? What's the alternative? What's the messaging here? And I think that would be useful because I think that this conversation is coming up online, too, I think, just between regular people. Yeah, we've seen this play out before. And I think, you know, people like you and me, we've, we've lived it during the L.A. riots, you know, when when blacks and Asians and Particularly Koreans in LA were pitted against each other, and and for me, like in my community, especially the Korean community, we spent years, decades, of uh, learning about what that was, and and just doing endless seminars and forums and inter-community development projects. Where in places like Brooklyn, you know, Black and Hispanic, uh, Black and Korean grocers, they all work together to constantly um, have positive, I think, dialogues. It's so. It's been in our consciousness for many years, and I think that I think the injection of the the next wave of Asian Americans that are coming in are putting in another layer of making a pushing the Asian community at large, in places like New York City, to understand the history of where we are as Asians and Asian Americans in the context of civil rights and in context of how, how our parents came here. And and that's where that's where that's where my space is right now. Uh, I have just a whole class of amazing young activists that are so much better at articulating this point and and educating the older generation in the process, you know, of what it is to to express and give radical love back to other minority communities. Because guess what, the black community always has stood up for us. When we needed them, when we needed, even during this pandemic, at the very beginning, when we we're being targeted, 
you have no idea how many black politicians and black communities called and, and tried to offer and stepped in and say, we're here for you, even though, you know, you guys all, haven't always been there for us. You know, their philosophy is that we don't have a choice but to be there for you. You know, and they called and they, and someone actually coined this term, the words radical love, you know, you know there is a history of Asians that recognize that they didn't show up for you when we needed you, when we needed us. But as blacks, you don't have a choice but to show up for you. And I think in this time, we have young Asian Americans who are reciprocating. They're saying that I know that there's violence and there are people upset, there are people of color who may be committing some of the looting that's going on now on the ground. And there's a lot of fear by Asian business owners, Asian seniors. But we're not tolerating violence, but we need to do a better job of where the violence comes from. You know, where does it stem from? And I think that's the conversation that we're having as we speak with our community. Yeah, that's a that's an uphill climb, though, Ron. You know, I think that's what's so difficult about this. And what you say is so, in a way, ironic because it's like in – I mean, I don't want to speak for the black community, but sometimes I feel like it's a wisdom that they pass down from the older generation to the younger. And what you're saying in the Asian case is the opposite. It's the younger that are trying to, as you say, educate or – um, to instill this notion of radical love into the older generation and to see past, you know, immediate knee-jerk uh, types of appeals to the, the law and order type politics that your opponent, um, who I hope does not get on the ballot. Um, oh, he's on the ballot. Oh, no. Okay. Okay. You have an election, so make sure people come out and vote for me on June 20th. Yeah, we'll get the word but out. We, we put out some plan A boots on the ground, including myself, to try and get um, – because I, I know that that forces you then to have to do a little bit of legwork yourself. And uh, I will say this, that it's not easy. Uh, me and one of your volunteers uh, spent the better part of an evening just covering about two buildings. And uh, this real, it's a, it's a real slog to, it's, a, it's like a door to, it's like the Battle of Leningrad. It's like door to door local politics is, you know. Um, but but yeah, I mean, you you've chosen the hard path is my take on it, and uh, you know I don't know if that has. Do you feel like the the job is harder for you than it is for other candidates who have, uh, you know, uh, an easy obvious appeal to, uh, you know, like 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 for example, being the law and order candidate. Yeah, I mean, I think it's easier to pander to people's fears. Um, be the retail sales politician, be very uh, tame to moderate and balanced, right? Say one thing here and say another thing to a different group. But I never wanted to be a, you know, 80%, 90% to politician. I don't think those politicians are effective. I, I think politicians who are 55, 60%, you know, approval, they're the ones that actually believe in something and sticking up for something. You know, and I always, you know, try to subscribe to that philosophy uh, in the way that I conduct policymaking and, and community development. Um, and I, they just have to know the truth about, you know, what this is about this week, you know, about police brutality, the over-expansion of our military, you know, of the, you know, the NYPD has increased by 50% in budget in 10 years. 
you know, while our schools, libraries, everything else in between have been reduced or cut. You know, I mean, that's what we have to tell to our, you know, family members and older, older adults. Like, do you want our kids to grow up in an environment where there's an abundance of school seats and there's an abundance of care for them? Or do you want this to be a complete police-run state? But that's where we are heading right now. I, I think I think this that's a you know, maybe it's a great opportunity in a way for local level politicians, because that's where this is. That's where the rubber is hitting the road here is these police budgets. And to, in my opinion, they're parasitic. I mean, like, just look at when you were out trying to get testing equipment and PPE out. I mean, that's a real slog. And suddenly it's like the country has to, you know, start wondering if we even have an economic base that is, uh, you know, big enough to even produce masks. And then this happens and you're like, my God, we ha- we can we've produced a full local government military. We've got billions going into providing the uh, weapons and training and uh, endless tear gas canisters, armored personnel carriers, uh, you know, just and just so much c- equipment. And uh, when it came to fighting this uh, covid epidemic on behalf of the people. Uh, we had nurses in trash bags and that, that to the average person I feel is just so it's such an insult. You know what I mean? Like it's such an insult. So I I feel like it's, it's almost not even a national question anymore. It's like the president's gone off and become a complete, just fucking, I don't know what to call him anymore, but the the solution is not going to come from there, you know? And I think we need another army of, 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 uh, local politicians who are going to be that style of politician that's not in it to make that don't have ambitions to be like, look, I'm here to broker deals to you know muscle my way uh, up to the top, and I hope my governor is actually gonna you know may- maybe take over for Biden, and I'm gonna pray that Br- Biden has an aneurysm, and I'll somehow find myself in an office job in D.C. with the you know at, in the West Wing, like that kind of thinking, you know, like what is the point of that? And and now it's it's we're looking at like basic moral questions here, nurses in, in, you know, and doctors in fucking uh, trash bags versus police outfitted. Like they're about to invade a foreign country. Uh, That's got to speak directly to, to the hearts and minds of people if it's communicated correctly. But I, you know, I mean, it became so obvious uh, when, uh, you know, in the first few days of uh, these protests breaking out, I mean, you didn't have calls from police officers begging the federal government for tear gas. They were stuck to the rafters with that. How many months have we gone uh, in the middle of a pandemic? People just people, uh, states, counties, hospitals begging for just basic masks. And I mean, I think it just became I, I mean, this all has to have, be part of this massive turnout. It's just the hypocrisies became way too obvious um, to ignore. There's no, there's no hand waving. And that's this. our money, right? That's the taxpayer's yeah. money and, and what we want. I mean, clearly if you ask any person out there, uh, I see you ask the average New Yorker and they're going to be pretty, or the a- average Angelino or Californian, they're going to be, it's going to be pretty clear what we want. I don't want to see my you know, I want to see police outfitted with Humvees and stuff like why, why are we buying that? Why don't we have adequate uh, supplies for the hospitals? Simple questions like that. I feel uh, everyone's going to be on the same page. And 
I feel like there's a there must be Ron, is there there's there's just something broken about the democratic process where the the people don't get to decide shit anymore. <laughs> like we don't get to decide if we want to cut the budget of the cops. The cops will come and yell at us and threaten us and stuff like this. Uh, even though we are the source of all of their funding, we're the ones who buy them their military toys so they can use this city like a goddamn playground, you know, and treat the people like we're NPCs in a video game. I mean, uh, there's, I don't know. I feel like the only way is, uh, it's, I mean, there's many ways, but I think one thing is, you know, as an Asian American listening to this, if you really think about getting involved, I mean, just throw in. What do you got to lose? Because you're not being heard anyway. <laughs> you know, like no one's listening to your shit anyway right now. Your vote and, you know, your what you're thinking doesn't sound like they really give a shit. So I don't know. So, I mean, Ron, um, so you were you were on the front lines throughout all of this, um, you know, during during the pandemic, when we were in lockdown, I saw footage of you standing outside nursing homes, you know, pleading with, you know, the officials, the media, you know, modeling responsible, responsible citizen behavior with, you know, yourself in full PPE, just advocating relentlessly. Um, and it seems like often, you know, just talking to a you know brick wall. Uh, advocating for your constituents and for these vulnerable uh, nursing home residents who are literally locked inside with no one able to advocate for them. Um, do you see, and now that, you know, we basically turned out uh, for these protests directly on the ground, do you, um, do you see a change, a shift in mood, both in your constituency and um, in the legis- in this legislature? Yeah. Um I think people finally realize that that our leaders have not been protecting the rights of individuals um, and the people who need it the most. Like nursing home is a great example. Most people don't know this, but the federal government passed a law in 1986 called Nursing Home Bill of Rights for the residents. So when you enter a nursing home, you're protected by federal statute there's a thing called a Bill of Rights for Residents. And the New York State even enhanced that and passed a state law that was supposed to give extraordinary protection and rights for nursing home residents. And it was all designed because if you think about, you know, dropping off your loved one at a place like a nursing home, it was all designed to make sure that that, the loved one's families, they feel safe dropping that loved one off in the nursing home. And during this pandemic, we completely waved and stripped, just looked the other way and didn't respect an ounce of their right. And we see that during the protest too, right? Nonviolent protesters who are just breaking the curfew. They're getting beat up by batons. Legal observers, journalists, bystanders, they're endless footages. So the common denominator here is for me is pretty obvious that we have sold out our democracy to special interest groups and corporations that who can buy their immunities, their civil rights. What about us? What about the people? And I think that's the value of, of the protests, the marches that are going on right now, that people has had enough. You know, we, we want to shift and we want the power to come back to us. And I know, I know it, it seems like a, you know, like a corny thing to say sometimes, but that's what I'm feeling on the ground. That's that's the movement that I feel that's 
happening as we speak. Um, and we got to take full advantage of, of this of this hour because we're not going to get it back you know, if you don't really push Wait. hard. Ron, when you say you want the power to come back to the people, like what time period are you referring to? In the last 40 years, um, I, our federal government, our policies, we've made a conscious decision to normalize um, the extraction of wealth out of, out of communities by awarding the, the, the bigger is better models around the world. We allow mega corporations to become monopolistic as long as consumers got what they want at the end of the day. You know, we became a complete consumer-driven society, which led to uh, a direct uh, extraction of wealth and value out of the communities. And there's a direct correlation of that and the expansion of our policing departments the last 40 years. Our population in New York City didn't increase. So why did we increase the size of the police department? No, it's not because we're growing in numbers. It's because more people are in debt and more people are living in poverty. So how do you keep people in check? You know, how do you manage the poverty and, and the inequality you know, in our society? That's the correlation um, that's, that's happening right now between the increase of policing and the extraction of wealth out of our communities. Um, so how do we, that's what, so that's the time frame I'm talking about. But now people are waking up to it. People understand what it means uh, to be in an, in an environment when they, where there's absolutely no hope of getting even the most basic human needs met anymore. Shelter, food. I mean, we just, we talked about it earlier, Jess, about people about to get evicted in Los Angeles. And people, there is, they're not feeling any kind of sense of justice or even an ounce of hope that our government is getting this right. And that's why they're mobilizing. It, it, it's George Floyd, right? But that's just the beginning. I think everything, as they're marching, as they're thinking, as they're reflecting, all the injustices that they're feeling, they're, they're, it's in their mind and they're talking about it as they're marching. They're, they're connecting those dots. And, it's, and that's, what, that's what's so powerful about the protesting that's going on right now. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I agree. I mean, just the story of George Floyd and his life, it's, uh, it's, such a, it's such a tragedy of our times. I mean, he was actually infected with COVID-19 earlier in April. So it's, it's like every, uh, the things that that man experienced, it's like a perfect microcosm of everything that's going wrong in America right now. Uh, well, I mean, hey, by he the, by was, the way, Jess, how do we know uh-huh. it was COVID? Nineteen positive. Think about what. Think about uh, how he, we. Right. right. Did his family? Right. Did his family disclose that information? I mean, that was that oh, was yeah. that was the police that released that information to the public. I didn't know that. I didn't know Cause that because they're, they're trying to set up a case that he, he couldn't breathe because he was COVID positive. That was a narrative. I had that no they, idea. It, it's really mm-hmm. just fucked up, you know. Like, like we don't get you don't get access to police data, but you get to disclose. To change your narrative about what happened, but luckily there was a footage. It doesn't matter how you spin it. It doesn't matter if he couldn't. He had a, a pre-existing illness. He was murdered. You know, with that. Ron, you're right. That, that I mean, that was just insane. That there was a that there was such a discrepancy between what the state medical examiner 
concluded saying that there were what was it called some underlying conditions and 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 that i guess opening the door to the possibility that had george floyd been healthier that what we saw wouldn't have killed him and 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 fortunately the you know there was um i guess michael baden who has done autopsies of a lot of of uh you know historic very very famous uh uh medical examiners put it that way came in and said no i none of this stuff was true there was no there was no other factor in his death uh just I, i don't think that's what you were saying but i think that um you know it's it's just another example of a government and and Ron, I'm, I guess I'm building up to this point because I think this is a difficult conversation for people to have right now. But it's like we're looking at w- what we're seeing. I think is government which just doesn't care about people anymore. It'll lie. It will tell us that what we saw with our own eyes through in that video wasn't true. Uh, that somehow they have a privilege to the truth that we don't. We can't make up our mind as to what we saw. Uh, supposedly this is, a, you know, to go, to go to a jury of peers, but this has gone to the entire country. And I think you can see where people came out. And so what their reaction was is that the people yeah. don't know the truth. Well, you can't make up your mind because the state <laughs> has access to you, is privy to information that you don't have. Things like this. There is this, just this notion from top to bottom, it seems like government just doesn't give a shit. It just doesn't, it just doesn't feel like it's at all, um, Respond, you know, is beholden to the people at all. It protects itself. The police act for themselves. They, there's no, the mask has gone completely off. I don't think there's any semblance of their behavior that would give that would that that that, that even bothers to show us that they're trying to protect and to, to protect and to serve the people. Where do we? Well, sorry, I, that, yeah. that's never that's never been the. Um the role of the police like if you look historically the police have always been there as like henchmen to powerful politicians and that's who they've always been protecting they're there to catch criminals you know lay criminals uh and to protect the wealthy and the powerful yeah and and i feel like diana what's different this time is that the people have essentially held the normal functioning of our, of our cities almost uh and of the police uh, hostage in a way. I, I I feel like right now they force the police to uh, do things kind of in line with like, you know, Martin Luther King's idea, re- actual idea of nonviolent protest, which was to allow the police to expose themselves. Right. He, he, he wasn't, he wasn't nonviolent in the sense of like, Hey, let's kumbaya. He was like, no, let them, let the, let the world see what the cops will do. And I feel like, this has gone so far in that direction. I'm not sure anyone in the police has even been thinking the degree to which they've been delegitimizing themselves. But now the question is, okay, if we have that on tape over and over again, every night, the images, you know, seared into the minds, not just of Americans, but all around the world, this is a global event. Where do we go from here? Like is abolishing the NYPD, uh, reforming them, not reforming, reforming the nypd but like disbanding and and replacing it with something that actually does serve the people fundamentally different than what we have now is that on the table or does there have to be more protests does there have to be more disruption look at look at look at what minneapolis did right they the city council put in a bill 
that's veto-proof that in a few years, they're going to transform and go in an entirely different direction. You know, call it abolishment, whatever you want to call it, but they're no longer going to be a traditional police department in a few years. And, and, and the, the reality is, right, we can't abolish the police department when we still have um, an economy that's not equitable. You know, it goes hand in hand. Um, unless we see, unless we have a system that captures the value and, ex- and, and, and able to express, capture, and store the value of every individual in our community, um, people will be left behind vilified, demonized, called super predators, whatever, you know, and, and that's what's ha- what that's what's happened to us, that we created all these false scenarios to, to fear monger, whether it was terrorism, whether it was human trafficking, you know, whether it was Bill Clinton calling people you know, super predators, you know, all these things were designed uh, to serve a purpose. Um, but, and, and we've also become conditioned to it, right? Like we've, through, through TV, social media, pop culture, we become conditioned to certain people acting violently, that we became so desensitized to the ugliness that we, were, we weren't impacted by it for the longest time. But now it's like people are checking out. Like they're not standing in front of a TV anymore. They're like, they're going out and we're actually like becoming human again. We're seeing the ugliness and the trauma face-to-face on the ground. And I think that is leaving an indelible mark in every person that's seeing this up close. That, and so, you know, I don't, think, I, think, I don't think we can go back to how it was. I think people want to break through. People don't want to be conditioned and, and you know, gaslit anymore. Like, they want to see the truth and they want to pursue the truth. You know, I think Trump has a lot to do with that because he is so obviously horrifying that like it, there's just no plausible deniability anymore. You know, like I think a more um, suave politician would have been able to just like maneuver in uh, in a way like Bill Clinton, you know, with his like super predators and stuff. But Trump, he's just like, looks at that video of a guy his age being knocked to the ground, uh, bleeding out his skull. And he's like, yeah, he's probably Antifa, you know, <laughs> like he deserved it. He said like, he fell harder than he was pushed. I mean, he's this. Yeah. This what the fuck does that mean? but i mean it's stuff like that it's just like uh you know like teen you're always saying like you would rather have something be out there in the open so that it can people can just point to it and say like aha that is what's wrong i mean that is like all trump is now and it's great i love it i think so i think like in a way the same happened with the police like in my opinion like i'm actually happy to see not I'm not happy to see old old men being pushed to the ground. I'm not seeing. I'm not happy seeing uh, young black men being shot in the face and uh, losing their eye and having their face bones shattered by quote rubber bullets. Uh, I'm not happy to see any of that. But on the other hand, that potential always existed, and uh, the police were always willing to do this. And to me, it's kind of like the Terminator. You know, it's like in normal times, it has this sort of like fleshy exterior, and we think it's almost human. And uh, when in, in past times, we felt like we could apply a certain kind of human form of justice against them. We could shame them. They could express shame. 
we could come to some understanding over an unfortunate incident and we can move past it. And this time I feel like we finally burned the damn flesh off the thing and it's not human. Like this thing isn't human, whatever the fuck it is. The police don't behave like humans. They've been trained. All their humanity has been trained out of them. I'm not saying a cop is not a human, but I'm saying that when they put on the uniform and when they're executing their job as they're doing faithfully, that you, 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 what you see is what you see. It's people that don't behave with zero humanity and they can push an old man to the, uh, that poses no physical threat to the floor. And then later say, claim he tripped and fell. And you're, yeah, that's, I, I guess that's what I'm saying is just like, in a way I'm happy to see the flesh burned off the Terminator and see this thing for what it really is. But now the question though, is the, the, the old solutions that we thought could apply because we thought we were dealing with a system that actually valued humans. I think Ron is what you're saying is it doesn't. Uh, and we need to replace it with a system that does. We need to replace the Terminator with an actual human. The question is how the fuck do we get the Terminator out of there? And I, and I guess the frustration for me, and maybe this is me speaking as a, as a frustrated voter, uh, to one of uh, our representatives in Albany is what for you know for all the for all the for all the wonderful values that some of you have um, how do we how do we get all of you humans in uh, the the few humans that we have that are in um, politics how do you all come together and form a plan of action that is both effective and you know that that people can understand and play a role in because i think it's nice it's easy to say what needs to what end state we would like to be we would like to have a society that respects the value of humans but and i and i know that i'm not saying you have it i i guess i'm opening it up to the things that you have focused on i think that you clearly have had identified things that we need to be doing what do you think those things are yeah i mean i think if you look to other developed nations that made a conscious choice to redesign their system to be reflective of a what we call a caring economy or caring society um, it could be done right so in places like Finland you know 50 60 years ago they made a choice to divest in their military and invest entirely into the care sector you know from schools to pay family leave you know insurance uh, uh, Medicare, all, all that stuff is covered. So you would think, well, if you make everyone uh, happy in our society and give all the redistribute wealth left and right, uh, how are people going to be productive? They're actually outperforming us economically because the old model of assuming that it's the competition, it's the cutthroat competition that drives us to be productive and productive human beings no longer applies. Every psychologist for the last 10 years came out and said that it's not what drives people. You know, it's the, it's the collaboration. It's the purpose behind the work you know, that drives people. And that's the, that's the, those are the steps that we need to be designing now at the very local level. Um, that means fully funding our schools, you know, fully making sure we don't cut Medicaid in the middle of a pandemic, which is what this governor did this year. Um, it's, it's unbelievable. No one is like talking about that. Um, making sure we have Medicare for all, or at least single payer at the state level, you know, no person, doesn't matter what the background is, should be sick. So we're talking about this basic human, you know, needs, shelter, food, healthcare, 
education. If you can meet, if you can just deliver those four things, um, it's a start. And what, and, and I know we're talking about abolishing and defunding the police. You know, what human being, if you think about it, don't want to live in a peaceful society where there is no need for a police department or the military? You know, I mean, what kind of, a, the fact that like, that's not even a possible vision a person could have, a normal person could have in a society is very sad, you know, especially when other nations already achieve that kind of level. Yeah, I mean, I, I guess uh, I would be curious to ask, um, which comes first, uh, if which one's the chicken or the egg? So um, where I'm coming from on this is, uh, obviously, they're interconnected, there's never going to be we're dealing with a messy time right now. Um, but what I'm seeing is I'm feeling a lot of hope that the issue that um, here at the uh, tail end of uh, lockdown at a mass level across the country, uh, I'm heartened that the issue that we all have our laser focus on is on dismantling police. Um, because I'm, I'm seeing a lot of, I'm seeing a lot of problems coming down the pipe very, very quickly. Um, just speaking for, for myself and, and my city, Los Angeles, um, in about a month, uh, maybe a month and a half, we're going to start to see uh, pandemic eviction moratoriums expiring. Um, and it's estimated that about 300,000 people, um, families really will be vulnerable to eviction at that moment. Um, we know that jobs are not coming back at um, at nearly the pace required. Not that it's even a great idea because this pandemic is still is still real. Um, you know, um, Bernie Sanders won a very important provision to expand unemployment insurance, um, but that will expire on July 31st as well. Um, so we're, we're, we're seeing just a ton of, uh, trauma that's about to come, that's, that's about to come our way. That's already uh, happening now. We're already seeing families who are not able to make their bills now. So the suffering is already real now, but in a few months, it's, uh, it's, it's just going to hit another level. And what I see is, um, at that point, um, it will be the police. It'll be the authorities who get called in to make to make that happen, to evict forcibly evict people, to uh, to manage labor unrest, all of that. So it's really heartening that we're we're starting at that point Wait, because that kind of sets the stage. Jess, what, sorry. So what you're saying is yeah. that this is going to be getting worse before it gets better. You think you think that there's a lot more to. I mean, I'm not saying that facetiously. I'm yeah. saying like you you think that the what you're seeing is that the economic situation is going to get worse. The I would at this point call it a freaking humanitarian situation in the United States. That's how bad it is. Much worse. I mean, the much vaunted small business protection program that they rolled out has been an abject failure. It did not reach who it needed to reach. It was far too little. It was far too late. And it did not reach the people that it needed to. So we're already seeing small business evaporate. And because, you know, all the states are pushing the reopen the economy, we're seeing what few protections there were or that were on the table quickly evaporating under the pressure to reopen. Um, so it's businesses that already did not get help for several months already now under pressure to reopen. Some restaurants are folding now that hadn't before because they couldn't find enough money to restock their refrigerators, uh, like restaurants, for example, they couldn't afford like $10,000 to just buy groceries again, uh, to restock and reopen. That's how bad it, and for that reason, um, they go under, um, it gets to be that bad. 
Uh, and this is just going to keep getting worse and worse and worse. Uh, what limited protections there are for for um, for the rest of like eviction moratorium, th- those are all about to be rolled back. I was just sitting in in on a LA uh, city um, a panel that set like August second as the tentative date uh, to revoke uh, eviction moratoria. I mean, what does that all add up to? Yeah. yeah, the no, difference. Yeah. Sorry, go ahead, Ron. Yeah. Sorry, go ahead. Look, yeah, I, 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 it has to be the economy. You know, we've I've been talking about this for you know, months, even before the pandemic, that you know there has to be a better economic model that protects our local communities first. And you know, we've offered different models to to get to this, including like community currencies, uh, resilient. Um, you know, programs that we know that's generating new wealth and keeping value, you know, in our local communities. But in this time, you know, we could have canceled rent. We could have injected uh, more cash into people's pockets. Um, but there just simply isn't enough political courage to go get the new money. And, 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 and there is new money. Trump is saying they're not going to help. States, they don't. He doesn't want to bail. He and McConnell are saying he doesn't. They're not going to bail out states and cities, but the Federal Reserve has made some bold moves, unlike 11 years ago, to give access to new money and make localities and states de facto almost federal agencies. Now they call they created what they call the a liquidity a municipal liquidity facility, um, MLF. Which is a, which is a, a lending arm of the Federal Reserve, but it's really like a, a loan from a family, where they give they could give, they could give in places like New York up to twenty billion dollars of a loan, but you know it's technical loan, but they they may never collect. You know but that's the way that's the, that's how the Federal Reserve have functioned during a crisis. Is, is it, that's a pretty um, big move? Is that is that something new that the Federal Reserve that's has done? New. Yeah. Okay, so that's a pretty 11, significant move. So they've unleashed the federal, the federal reserve spigot of cash directly to the states is, right. is essentially what's going on here. And, and Illinois was the first state to, to secure that pot of money. And I have I have introduced I just, as soon as they introduced it in February, I built I introduced a bill to go compete for that money because we need immediate access, you know, of cash flow. Like our people are literally dying. Like our our immigrants, you know, they they don't get any of these benefits. It's, it's it's yeah the trauma is, is devastating. So j- 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 sorry, Jess has mentioned this before because I, I think this is a really important point because you know wh- even though it feels so dire and so hopeless, the, the the part the thing about this is that in the American economy, the key really is just getting money to people. It's not right in a way we have an economy that is set up to make this very easy. Just get money out the door and get it into the hands of people, but it's not happening fast enough. I I don't think it's they've done nothing the federal government, but not nearly enough. And uh there's no shortage of money. Uh you know, they can they like you said with this uh with with, with this new federal reserve program, they'll find ways if they have to sidestep congress or whatever. They'll find ways to get the cash. The cash is there. It's not a lack of cash. Right. Uh, so it's, it's fiat currency. We can literally make money out of nothing. Right. Yeah. Like Federal Reserve prints money. Like they literally, it's it can. It's not tied to gold anymore. It's we can print money. 
Yeah, there's a there's a book out today, by the way. Uh, I'll just plug it real quick. Stephanie <laughs> Stephanie Kelton's uh, The Deficit Myth, I think, came out today, and I think it's a really oh, important sure. read for people. Um, yeah, but yeah, Jess, you've mentioned that before. Just like why we just need to get cash into people's hands and we can solve so much of these problems. But for some reason, I don't know whether it's an intentional uh intentional agenda to keep people down and to keep them desperate if it's just, if there's just some sadistic pleasure on the part of the uh, right wing to watch the people in the blue states suffer i don't know if that's what it is or or whether they're really stupid and they think that there really is going to be uh there is a shortage of money it's, that no, it's, it, you it's know arti- it's, it's the creation of artificial value if you're in a position of power and influence you create you create scarcity so if you have it, whatever you have becomes more valuable. It's, it's, it's complete artificial player value for the rich and wealthy. And they're driving, it's an oligarchy-based agenda. They're driving the agenda. Um, that's why. Yeah. yeah. Go ahead. You no, know, no, I agree with that completely. I mean, one of the most uh, just hilarious hilarious pieces that I saw coming out of the uh, pandemic. I say coming out like we're actually over it. Um, but... It was a. Uh, it was. I think it was CNN Money uh, talking about the newest financial crisis hitting America. Americans are hoarding too much cash. It's, this was an actual article that came out. It was saying that you know since March, since about February, really, consumer spending weight went way down. C- people started paying off their credit cards more and more. They started saving more, um, and CNN spun that as a crisis. People are just sitting on too much cash. Yeah. Because, I mean, because, think about what that actually, yeah. what what that means for that the understanding of money when it's in our hands versus in their hands. Because well, it's it's our responsibility to keep the 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 economic heart beating. There's hell no can the government do anything about it, right? They're not allowed to do shit. Right. And, so. and they're quoting executives from like Visa or like a, mm. credit cards oh, saying their revenues are down because people are paying down their credit cards and not adding to their tab. I mean, how I mean, and it's framed as a crisis that we're supposed to read. It's disseminated widely. It's CNN for crying out loud. We're supposed to read it and and think, oh, my God, America is in a is having a problem because we're not giving we're not giving credit card companies our money. Oh, my right. God. It's, it's like when, uh, you know, in the cartoons when uh, Wiley e. Coyote goes over the cliff, but he doesn't know it. And so he just keeps going in a straight line. Uh, off the cliff and it's not until he looks down to realize that you know he's he's fucked i feel like those kinds of articles it's that it's like they're still thinking in terms of you know the regular functioning of the economy back in like you know uh 2004 or something like that you know like they're still thinking in these terms and they've refute like these the people who write such articles i feel don't understand like it's a changed world like that that doesn't make any more sense you know it's like some people have not fundamentally moved past the understanding of money as like literally gold, yeah, uh, like yeah. a tangible asset, really. I mean, there's no interpretation of the ec- the state, the ec- economic state we were in a few months ago and will continue to exacerbate going forward that isn't supported by just simply get the fucking money out there into people's hands. If you just see money as lubricant to keep the gears of capitalism moving then you need to put that in the hands of consumers there is no understanding of money where that doesn't make sense especially for the crisis we 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 were going through um several months ago but then we so we see that and i'm pretty sure people in power understood that it's just 
they it's just we were handed these you know twelve hundred dollar checks or you know limited amounts of aid for small businesses uh, to keep the understanding to keep to prevent common understanding of money uh, as just something that we agree to it's not really a store of value it's just it's just a promise right you just keep money out there and it, we keep it pumping through the system everyone eats everyone gets their bills paid things things move yeah no just does that I, make that's, sense that's a, that's that's actually yeah it makes perfect sense which is exactly uh why i actually introduced a bill called the inclusive value ledger ivl which would transform our public benefits and treat them like money um, on a public Venmo platform. This is something that we try to introduce because we recognize the lack of cash flow into our neighborhoods. And money, like you said, is what we, what we see, as, what we store, express, and exchange in value. But, you know, it, it doesn't have to be dollars in cash. You know, we have, we have in a place like New York, like $55 billion of individual tax credits and benefits, if we liquidate that and treat it as cash, that's immediate money that people can start exchanging. Um, it's, 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 you know, it was a radical idea at the time, but it was now covered by the MIT Tech Review. And it's, it's in California. I just spoke to a senator earlier um, who might be introducing the same concept over there under the, under the aegis of, of a public banking structure. Um, which also is very important in terms of what comes first, right? We need a public banking or kind of like a public system option that is designed to circulate and keep money flowing inward, not outward. And which is also the reason why I don't, I'm not a big fan of um, universal basic income and the way that it's been designed initially, as well as some of the stimulus money that have been going into directly into po people's pockets without protections. Because if you're in debt, if there's a lien against your house and you get that money in front of the cash, that money is immediately taken out of your banking system. Um, so we need yeah, to design, design a system better to keep that money flowing in. Yeah. We can't keep running two economies. The same at the, the CARES Act also legislated into it just created out of thin air four trillion dollars that none of us will ever see that's pumped directly into the hands of private equity into the banking system so there's an understanding of money at that level that it's not real in other words but for us we get this tiny twelve hundred dollar check with a list of conditions bigger than a phone book to, on it and asked to say thank you it's i mean it's a it's a like Ron, I endorse I endorse your work on this one hundred percent, and I will endorse it in California, my home state as well. I think that's the I think that's the only direction we can go in uh, that has any chance of working. It's got to happen though, because in, in my you know the way I am interpreting things, it's like I don't think people have any more patience for this shit. Like I don't think people have the patience to listen to plans necessarily that are going to take. 10 years or something to implement or that are going to become uh, the political fight of the next decade that is going to be subject to endless uh, delays and compromises and that, you know, we all have to just hold on for a little bit longer. I just I think something happened where people freaking snapped, you know, and I, I, I don't know if people have patience anymore for 
smart, comprehensive plans. And, uh, you know, it's, it's tough. It's a tough thing. I mean, I think these, these things are important, but on the other hand, I I just don't know if people want to hear any more shit. I think they're like, look, we need a body. (laughs) You know what I'm saying? Like we need someone just like after 2008, we're like, we need someone to go to prison. We need a, we need a body. We need a CEO to go to prison. And, And it never happened. And I feel like that anger never got released in a way. And I feel like this time, again, we're going to need a body. We're going to need a police department to go down. We're going to need, a, you know, we're going to need not just resignations. I think we're going to have, that's why I think people are saying abolition here. Because I just don't think that we can, you know, we we cannot convince people of nuanced plans and rethinking things when we cannot get over our fundamental anger uh, and just absolute sense of moral indignation at what's going on. There's no room for any other, there's no room for thinking, you know, like that, that's, that's, I guess is where I'm at right now. I mean, not personally. I mean, I can see the, I can see the point of better things in the future, but right now it's like, I I feel like people just want to see some, something go down. You know, and yeah, I, I yeah. can't blame them. Yeah, but it, at the same time, you know, I, you know, all during the entire pandemic, I, I actually stopped watching television, not even a few minutes. And recently, I turned it back on uh, to see a couple of shows, and and the endless commercials and all the advertising that I'm seeing and hearing on the radio these days are, are these like ridiculous car companies saying, "We feel your pain." I know what you're going through. <laughs> uh, we, yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, we're gonna we're kneeling with you, but we know what's gonna make you feel better: the zero percent interest rate for five years without the stock. <laughs> like it's literally like that's like the ad. But people like you and I are different. But I think the majority of Americans, they're gonna get reconditioned. You know, the one the once they stop marching, once they start sitting in their living rooms again, turning on their TV, getting on their Facebook with their targeted ads we are going to get reconditioned and check out. Uh, that's, and that's, that's the most dangerous thing. TV, social media. How, long will that- how, how will that last, you know? Because it's still going down that same path and it's still going to get worse and worse. So even if people get reconditioned, um, like, it's, it's not going to... It's not going to be, they're not going to be able to stay there, right? It's going to get stuffed back into the box and explode again, but even bigger. Yeah. Yeah. It's going to explode again. So it makes more sense to just fucking deal with the shit now. I mean, I'm not saying that people actually will do that, but like that would be, you know. I think there will be immense pressure to do that though. Um, We talk about the tyranny of the 10%. To stuff it back in the box. Sorry, just to, to stuff it back in the box. Yeah, I think that's mm-hmm. coming. I think I think what Ron is seeing is very real. I'm seeing it too. I mean, these ads are. I mean, Orwell would be proud to see <laughs> to see this play out. Uh, I mean, I've seen. I saw a candy company come out with a with a. You know, we're here in solidarity. Like you're a candy company. Shut up. <laughs> Wasn't it like one candy company that has been a rival of another, and they said that they put their differences aside as competing candies and are now joined Something in solidarity? Like that. Like what are you Skittles? Are you gonna are you gonna like roll out a black Skittles line or something? Like like shut up! Like you're like we'll deal with you later. We don't have time for you right now, but we got our eye on you. Um, but, but I mean, like we've talked about the tyranny, the ten percent 
right? And by 10%, we mean the top 10% of society. So a lot of the discourse focuses on uh, a, a class dichotomy, like working class versus the oligarchy, right? Or the 99% versus the 1%. But I think what Ron is seeing is the the effects of seducing that the 10%, um, the buffer class, the enforcer class for that 1%. So a lot of us are in that, you know, that we're talking about the educated middle to upper middle class professionals, like lawyers, business people, uh, doctors, people who have access to some capital are still tied to the traditional labor work, work, um, workplace dynamics, but ultimately it rolls up to, and especially when we get to like people in spaces like journalism or the creative arts or writing, uh, you can see, you can see their class allegiance most clearly it rolls up to providing uh providing cover for the interests of the one percent but i think that's what covid did right was to was to sort of knock yes it, 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 like it, the the reins that that 10 that that i call them the next nine the next nine percent um below the one percent the reins that they are entrusted with over the rest of society well everyone went home everything shut down and so they like they they were without their authority for a little while and then you see what happens you see the result like when the when the masses of people are not kept in line through the daily grind of the economic system if they're just freed for you know for a, a bit of time uh, you see what happens you know and i think that's why it's so people are so fearful because like we govern through i guess what ron is referring to as the system of domination and if that system of domination relaxes a little bit we got nothing to replace it we don't have another way of thinking about how to exist other than the daily grind of of uh of of capitalism i got right? I actually it's i actually very wrote, prosaic. yeah i wrote i wrote a not bet about this during the middle of the pandemic i the times union that we should just pay people to care, you know, just, you know, pay people to care for each other, even at home and, you know, and pay, pay, pay people to care for communities and our, and our planet and our nature. I mean, that's what the, what, at the, at the min, middle of the pandemic, that's the most valuable lesson that I think a lot of us learned that when we couldn't go outside and we were sheltering in, we were actually going to, you know, we were actually at our most core of humanity. Like we're around, we're supposed to be around our loved ones. We're supposed to be, you know, simplifying everything around us. And most of us, I don't know about you guys, but you know, we just couldn't deal with it. You know, because we, we felt so unproductive, even so conditioned to go out there and make capital and do something that produces some value, artificial value for our society that it told us that we have to do A, B, and C. But what's most important, I think, in life is the care that we give to the loved ones and to our friends and to our community. But what if, if we have an economy that actually pays us to do that? Right. I mean, this is all interconnected. This is not out, out of some moral duty. I mean, it was pretty—it's pretty egregious. The writing that came out of the pandemic. Again, you know, highly paid, uh, usually male. Uh, authors who would come in and talk about how America is shut down, America's closed. You'd think that it's a it's a you'd think it's a eulogy of sorts. And the reality is no, it's not that we're closed. It's it's that now we're just doing all the stuff that is not recognized in the formal economy. So you see a whole lot of people completely undermined, like like mothers, for example, who now had to shoulder extra burdens from being from having additional child care, a disproportionate burden. 
of handling childcare now that the schools and daycares were shut down, things like that. None of that. There was no. There is no rhetoric to be able to account for that. Uh, for that shift in labor, because it's we just didn't have the language to account for it in terms of value, a macroeconomic or social value. Uh, and I think that I think a lot of people were activated by that realization that the things that they were required to do now, simply just nobody was there to recognize in a tangible way. In fact, they were penalized for it, uh, as we'll see in the coming months when families go go belly up from just trying to make ends meet in in completely untenable conditions for months and months on end. So it's, to me, it's 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 not it doesn't go it's not antagonistic to what we think of as a healthy or strong capitalist economy. This actually feeds into it. Uh, I mean, we've seen time and time again just reducing workloads um, actually boosts productivity. A, a well nourished, cared for, not not stressed to the gills population will be more vibrant. It will be more active and alive and and you know productive if that's what you care about. So there's no way to cut this that 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 excludes this uh, this this estimation of value of human value. Well, we can only imagine a system of corporate profit, right? Because I think we've been educated into the idea that somehow profit is its own sort of motivating force. Like, how could you possibly have a society if you don't have massive corporate profits? <laughs> like, what? You, like, what, uh, the. The, the the obvious question being where the profit's going to come from, meaning like it's almost like as you see idiocracy where everyone's like, you know, uh, uh, Brondo electrolytes. That's what it's what plants love. It's like we believe that at the bottom, the most important thing is electrolytes or, you know, something ridiculous like that. And uh, I think it's going to be really difficult um, to convince people otherwise uh, I think that, like, uh, you know, the more people write about it, the more, I guess, we talk about things like, um, uh, you know, paying people for social, socially valuable work rather than profitable work. Uh, and people just being okay with that concept and not immediately going towards, like, well, what about profits then? Uh, if we start understanding the way in which, like, a lot of profits right now are actually socialized, that we're, we're paying companies their profit. Uh, so that they can show a profit uh, out of where? Out of nowhere. And uh, things like Stephanie Kelton's book, the ways that we've been um, indoctrinated for decades with this belief that, you know, our country is on the verge of bankruptcy, that America is somehow insolvent, that the most important, that the biggest scarcity uh, in America is money. And, and, uh, and, and without enough you know, tax revenues to support or, or spending cuts or whatever, whatever side of the political spectrum you are, that you simply can't run a government unless you, you know, get rid of spending. You can't get run of the government until you get rid of its uh, ability to spend money uh, is is just stuff that has been so deeply ingrained that I'm not even sure we have any conception of uh, a country without these notions. I, I And I say this because I have trouble with it. You know, it's it's not easy for me as like a person that's been educated into these things to fully let go of this notion that uh, that, uh, you know, corporate profits are not the end all be all. Well, um, well, look at it's coming back into full circle. Like, look at what happened to the nursing home industry. Right. It's completely run amok by uh, private equity firms and hedge funds. Right. And in places like New Jersey, I think 84 percent are run by these type of investors who are completely for profits and they come in at the worst times, you know, when it's, it's a mom and pop nursing home 
but is about to fail. They buy out like 20 of them in big conglomerates, and it's all profit-driven. Where So just think about just how to disconnect of a nursing home where they're supposed to uphold the highest standard of care that's profit-driven because at some point, some some politician or decision-maker made the choice that for-profit models are more efficient and productive and people are inherently uh, more productive when and when, when there's a, a tangible profit at the end. Um, you know, that the result of that is, are 6,000 people who are dead. You know, they, when, when, when a crisis happens, they're protecting their bottom lines. They don't care about the lives. They see these people as just numbers, as data, you know, a check they got to collect from Medicaid. And, and I, I, think, I think there's a real story that needs to be told out of that crisis. So, Fran, just, just finishing up on that, um, I mean, it was egregious what, what happened. So um, can you fill us in on any action happening with that? I know you're, you're trying to push back on that. Has there been any move to uh, remove immunity um, to, get, to get advocacy and accountability into, into nursing homes? Yeah, so we just picked up a Senate sponsor, uh, Alexandra Biaggi. She's in Westchester. We're doing this massive, uh, well, not massive, but very meaningful town hall with families who lost loved ones. They're, they're actually very organized. Um, there's like, I think, 1,800 families who have organized in New York, or if not more, uh, families who lost loved ones that are pushing for not only this bill, but other legislations that are going to hold uh, nursing homes accountable, but repealing that immunity law is one of the most important things because it, it's our data proves that it's a clear disincentive uh, for these corporations to care when they know that they have a get out of jail free card. And why would they want to invest when they don't have to? They know they don't, they're, not, they're not going to be prosecuted or held to any third party civil lawsuits. It's, it's, a, it's, it, it, it really another, I mean, Ron, it's, I really think like people are going to look back and be like, without really realizing it, maybe perhaps now, that like the average person might be suffering a little bit of PTSD just given like exposure to just news and what's going on. Like like that, all that stuff about the nursing home stuff was like of all the emergencies, of all the emergency things that the state wants to do, they want to go protect. They want to make sure that people who lost family members cannot sue and seek compensation. That's that's the number one priority. And now you're telling me that it's because uh, what what's at stake really are private equity profits. That's the whole fucking point of capitalism. If you're a private equity firm, what happened is like you are assuming risk. You're assuming risk that the things you're investing in don't go well. And part of it, you know, like they they want to socialize. They they always want government to bail them out when they, when their investments go belly up. You know what I mean? And and, and uh, maybe we have to look at even if you are a dyed in the wool capitalist and free market fundamentalist, that the system we have is not really working because the investments are the investors are always bailed out, you know, and so we're not really dealing with a real free market economy. We're dealing with uh, some sort of caste based system where the, uh, the investor caste is always protected and, you know, everyone else is screwed in their favor. So. I don't even feel like we're living in capitalism anymore or, or free market, yeah, a free market. It's, like a, it's a mega monopoly based model. You know, there's a cap on how many nursing homes that they give out in terms of licensing and they corner that market. And 
they're hedged to win either way. Even if they fold, what you know, the the real estate property that they hold in nursing home, they'll convert it into condos or hotels. So even so, even if they get bailed out in the form of immunity or whatever, they live to see another day. But either way, these these private equity firms are covered, and and there has to be a whole another podcast in private equity. And, and how it intersects uh, with the care sector, hospitals, and, and nursing homes, because they- oh, I, well, I'm down for that. Jess, you down I, for that, Diana? <laughs> no, I mean, I was raging yeah, about this yeah, for weeks. Totally. This isn't. This is. This was not covered at all in any coverage of the CARES Act. We handed so much money into the pri- just just looking at just the private equity sector and these the private equity was already sitting on something like 3 trillion in capital already before this and then we pumped them full i think they have another 2 trillion in their war chest uh, that we that we just printed for them in the middle of the worst public health crisis in in modern times um, and I'm starting to see those knives come out right now as these suffering companies get desperate and they start to fold. I'm seeing these these private equity looters, I'll call them looters, starting to sweep in. And they're right. putting pressure on local uh, local and state governments to stall any any way to actually provide support or care for their constituents in order to drive that price down so they can swoop on in. So vulnerable properties are being snapped. So, I mean, it's 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 mass looting on an epic scale. And all the coverage that I saw of the CARES Act only focused on the um on the part that was consumer facing, but there was so much more um, that is not yeah. publicly accessible. You know, there's like uh, the venture capitalists, um, you know, who fund like tech companies, tech small businesses. They were actively telling their small businesses um, to not uh, apply for funding. But like a lot of them are the ones who are actually benefiting. They're profiting off of this. Yeah, it's a it's a completely it, we're at war and we're at war with our own like financial class at the moment. Yeah, something's there's got to there's some hard discontinuities happening. I don't think this is going to be a gradual reform. I think we're going off a fucking cliff. And uh, I, you know, the I, I just I just think there's only, there's a limit. There is a limit to exploitation, meaning like. I, it's not like the people have an infinite capacity for exploitation, and I think we're seeing it. I just think people are just like, "Fuck it, I can't, I can't do this. We're going to burn the Amazon <laughs> warehouse down." Or, you know, like, I think that's what it takes. It's, that that you have to have that level of public, like, uh, yeah, uh huh. Because there's like, like exploitation will keep exactly. going if it's limitless. If we have a limitless capacity to eat shit, then we'll just keep eating shit. But clearly, thankfully. It seems like people have a breaking point yeah. and we're seeing that. And to me, it's a beautiful thing. And I know it's kind of fucked. And maybe this is Diana, like we've, we've talked about this too, just like, you know, it, as Asian Americans, you know, I think we're very orderly people. Uh, we like to see order. We like to see harmony and stuff because we, we are caught. And I think the reason is because as an immigrant community, we're often caught between big powers that we don't control. And so we like peace because we get ground up into a fine dust whenever things whenever there's a fucking earthquake. But I think now it's starting. I'm starting to see that maybe we have to be a little bit more comfortable with uh, with with some of the chaos. I think we have to start thinking like. You know, we're never going to get change without we a have to start clay. We you have know? to start thinking like fucking Klingons because that is what 
people here are. You just need to scream and fucking yell like a, you know, like punch (laughs) like a fucking feral animal. And that's the only way anybody will take you seriously. That is true. (laughs) Have we scared Ron off yet? Is he like, oh, these people need to calm down? I mean... (laughs) Yeah, we're 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 swearing, but I mean, if twenty twenty doesn't call for some some f bombs here and there, I I don't I don't know what you're saving them for, honestly. Um, True. I, but it's it's it's. I feel like the, like this increased uh, willingness to be vocal, to stand up, to actually, and now we're seeing this physically. People actually getting out there, and it's happening so organically. Um, it's just masses of people collectively deciding to put their like physical, literally put. Uh, put put you know rubber to the road and show up uh make their presence known i mean if, if there's anything if, if there's anything that i could generalize about being asian american it would be that you know trying to find some cheat code right like it's a it's a big system it's a very complicated game but there's there's always this promise that if you just grind it out right um that you can find like you can find a little like niche you can make it kind of if you just kind of stay quiet and keep your keep your nose to the ground and work but i think this is what this is exposing is that there's actually nobody who is safe there is no real cheat code to this that gets us to some promised land we are stakeholders there is no way to kind of manipulate anything like we are we are embedded into the fabric of this country and and it's and we're not at we're advo- we're coming out and advocating, you know, for Black Lives Matter, for George Floyd, for all the victims of police brutality that we've had the misfortune to have uh, to witness over and over again. But it's also advocating for our like ourselves, like we're we're saying like no, we're we're fucking here, we're not going anywhere. Um, we're part of we're part of this, and our fortunes are tied to the collective fortunes of this country. It's also a, a litmus test in terms of police brutality and Asian Americans. Because we are also victims, left and right, in our immigrant, immigrant yes. communities of police brutality. And like, well, even this week, you know, many people from our community, they don't want to even talk about it. Like when we had, you know, sex workers raped and killed and thrown off balconies by the cops. Yeah, uh, I'm no, just no, thinking no, about that. Yeah, we don't want to talk about that. Uh, we'll just focus on George Floyd. And no, like police brutality is real, and they target our most vulnerable community members in our backyard as well. Um, and it's also a litmus test of whether we're willing to step up, we're willing to push back, and and be part of that fight. Um, but it's 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 very. We still have it's, there's so many psychological barriers that we don't want to admit that we have police brutality because it kind of invalidates our sense of harmony, like you said, or sense of being structured and orderly. Um, I think we feel vulnerable, Ron. I think Asians rightfully, I, I think we do often search for, and, and we, this is something that we address a lot on the pod, but I do think we often search and try to locate uh, the reason as to why we're like this. And, and sometimes we attribute it to a certain cultural essentialism. Sometimes we attribute it to the immigrant uh, mentality. Uh, but there's also just the plain fact that as a community where we're, we know, um, you know, I think I think people are always a little bit smarter. Uh, history will show that people are always a little bit smarter than we give them credit for. I think we kind of know that we're vulnerable, you know, um, and that maybe it is rational for us to be uh, uh, looking for calm and peace and order. 
Uh, but I'm just saying that in this moment, it's not possible. So if it's not possible, then 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 what do you do? You know what I mean? I don't know if we can just bury our head in the sands this time, you know? No, we we were actually talking about that today because we were in Albany passing uh, like 11 bills around criminal justice reform. But none of them actually directly impacts her case. Unfortunately, maybe it will deter in the future uh, police officers like vice cops like that person who targeted Song Yang. Um, but as far as development goes, you know, there's, there's just, there was no oversight. There was no accountability and we couldn't get any kind of information because their, the cops information was sealed. Um, so, you know, to this day, we, we keep having these rallies and we keep focusing on legislation um, that helps decriminalize sex work. Uh, and that's kind of, that's been our, that's, that's our venue, avenue to honor uh, her life. But yeah, I mean, yeah, I don't think, I don't think she'll be able to ever have any uh, real direct justice, unfortunately. So, um, so Ron, on that note, um, let us know, how can, how can we support you, your work, the constituents you're working, who are some people, um, uh, we should be, we should be following on social media or wherever they can be found some good people who are, uh, allies in the, in the kinds of initiatives that you're trying to push through. Yeah. So, you know, my co-partner, uh, Yulin Yo, she's also the co-chair of the Asian Pacific American Task force definitely follow her work. You know, she and I are, are family, and you know Kai Zhang, who you had on your podcast from Red Canary, she is the executive director for the APA task force uh, in Albany. Uh, she took on that role last year, and she's been amazing. So follow her work as well. Um, as far as the supporting, I think you know our repeal the bill to our bill to repeal the immunity clause. Nursing home is 10427, uh, A10427. Um, if you want to retweet it, you know, tell people to go co-sponsor, tell elected officials the reason why they should be supporting that, and that's always helpful on social media. Um, and just, you know, just keep in touch with me. You know, just, uh, I'm always active on Twitter at Ron T. Kim. Um, and if you want to reach out, I'm, 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 pretty, very, I'm pretty responsive. So, um, so you're so you're running for re-election this year? Yeah, I have a re-election in June 23rd. Uh, people can start uh, voting now through the absentee ballot program. Uh, we we actually have no idea what the turnout is going to be. Um, this is the first time we've encouraged people to vote absentee uh, at a mass level. So we don't know how many voters are actually going to turn out. I'm also a Bernie delegate, uh, even though Bernie dropped out, he's still on the ticket. Um, so I'm on, I'm, I'm, my name will pop up twice this year as a Bernie delegate, as well as an assembly uh, candidate. Uh, this will be my uh, fifth term, um, going into my 10th, ninth year, if, you know, assuming I get reelected. Um, I don't plan on going that many more years after this. I never intended to be <laughs> honest to go after six years. I made a promise with my family actually that six years was going to be my cap. Uh, I'd never wanted to be a career politician. Um, so, you know, I am very actively um, thinking about the next generation and who will step up and, and for the right reasons, not just to get a pin on the jacket and be 
feel important or validated, but really serve and have a purpose. And there's so many, I think, young people that are inspiring of age, from our community. Um, and you're going to see a lot more coming up uh, as a result of the protesting and the injustice that people are feeling. So in that note, it's actually, it's actually very exciting that we will see a, a whole new wave of political leadership, um, you know, as, as amazing as AOC or better than AOC. And we have those type of talents in our community. And I think they're ready to step up. Ron, thank you for the work you're doing. Uh, I, I hope uh, I hope things go things go well with these things you're working on. Thank you, Diana. Thank you, Jess. Thank you, Tina. Appreciate the time. I mean, it, you know, if Yulin wants to come on too, I think it'd be awesome to talk with both of you. Yeah, no, she's 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 awesome. I'll uh, I think we tried to get her on a few months ago. I remember there was an email uh, that was going back and forth. So I'll circle back. All right. All right. Thanks, guys. Thank you. Bye.